what was my question? Oh yeah, you're a you're a baby, and you, dude. This this podcast is fucking off the. This podcast is so off the rails. We're only 15 minutes in. Um, I'm 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 ripped right now. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Buzzwords. I'm here with Bobby. Hello, sorry, I was drinking some water there. Sorry for the pause. No worries. And today we have our first of a series of infectious disease lectures, this one primarily covering pneumonia. Before we start, just wanted to remind you all that we have plenty of stickers. We have a whole slew of stickers ready to ship out for y'all. So uh, just send us a quick message on Instagram and we'll send you a handful of stickers. So that's a... That's a, that's a spicy point. meatball. <laughs> Alrighty, well, what are you drinking today? I'm drinking the Stone IPA. It's very classic, black can, green text with kind of a devil, daredevil uh, image right on the front. It seems very simple, but it says the iconic West Coast style IPA. I think I've you? had that before. That's actually that's like a really isn't the I, the uh, ABV on that one super high? It's like a nine or ten percent. Gonna get this you one is one point seven percent, so it's oh, pretty yeah. good. That's pretty good. That's like two beers. I am drinking uh, Shorts Brew Sticky Icky Icky. Ooh. It has like a, a gnome looking gentleman on the front diving into what appears to be a large amount of marijuana. Nice. Sticky icky. That makes sense. Yeah. Does it also have cannabis in it or is it just purely? Uh, I don't think so. Alcohol? I'm pretty sure Ohio is very uh, restricted in terms of having. Oh, damn. This is 7.1%. We're drinking tonight, boys <laughs> and girls. <laughs> and yeah, you have to tell our listeners where you've been the last couple hours. I've been at the bar. You're not starting at zero. Yeah. <laughs> I figured, you know. Bo's questions are too easy, so I wanted to handicap myself a little bit. Oh, man. All right, guys, that man bun picture is coming to Instagram now 100%. <laughs> and, and, you know, these empty threads. There's never a picture. <laughs> there, there was no picture. <laughs> you, you put that in the podcast every time. It's just like a running joke. Like, what the fuck are they talking about? You come on to, like, podcast 30, and it's like, seriously, the man bun is coming the out. The man bun's coming out. You actually post it, and I'm like, I already cut my hair. Like, it's back to normal now. <laughs> the highest Patreon tier. There's, like... Three normal tiers, and the tier is just the man. It's like a hundred bucks, and it's like just a picture of me with the man. <laughs> All right, well, I'll drink to that. Shall we start? Cheers. Yeah, let's get it going. All right, Bobby, I have the first patient for you today. He's a businessman. He comes in with diarrhea, fever, and a productive cough. What are your thoughts? I am thinking that this man maybe attended the. Uh, veterans legion conference or whatever it was he probably has legionnaires disease yeah maybe he hung out at the uh legionella hotel right yeah maybe he uh was in like the 300 movie part of the roman legion mm. he's a legionnaire a legionnaire or maybe he's he worked in detroit status maybe he worked in detroit and he has the uh, pontiac fever oh yeah the pontiac fever <laughs> <laughs> So you, you're like, okay, I think it's like Legionella, he has diarrhea, it's classic. What? And you're like, okay, let me get some basic labs. What's the one thing that would stand out and kind of point you towards more of a Legionella picture? Their sodium's going to be low. Exactly. Yep. And then, so do you know what the vital sign derangement that's associated with them? Legionnaire's disease? Fever. Right. Like most infections, they have a fever, but what is unique to Legionnaire's <laughs> disease? <laughs> A vital sign, so one of just a yeah. handful of things. Interesting. Yeah. Narrowing it down for you. Let's see. Are you usually not? Yeah. How about a hypertension? No. So they actually have relative bradycardia. So oh. usually when you get a fever, you get tachycardic because it helps generate heat and it, you know, gets the blood pumping, gets that fever going. 
but uh, for whatever reason with Legionnaires disease, they have what's referred to as a, a relative bradycardia. So if, if they have a heart rate that's like in the 70s and their fever is up to like 104, um, that actually would suggest Legionnaires disease. That's interesting. I forgot about that. Mm-hmm. Great. I'll drink to that. That's a great high yield point. Yeah. It's a little gotcha. It does show up sometimes on the... I think there's one or two year old questions that you had to actually like recognize that as like one of the, the pieces of information that drives you one way versus another. Yeah, these nuances are, are so valuable because they can be the difference between maybe not just getting a question correct or not, but the difference between spending 30 seconds or 10 seconds on a question versus, you know, two or three minutes because you just can't pick up these cues. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, the, the actual, you know, step two is written to be so vague that like any little thing you can find that helps you, you know, lean one way versus another for a question is something that you can kind of rely on when you're actually taking the test and feel confident and then just move on versus like you know guessing and just kind of worrying about that question the rest of the test so uh you're a young man and you decide to join the military or you decide to uh go off to college what do you have uh mycoplasma yeah nice the most common cause of pneumonia between those between the ages of 18 and 40 yeah um very good and the main thing to remember is it's actually it's one of the atypical causes of pneumonia, so it's it's also referred to like colloquially as walking pneumonia. So um, people tend to be not that symptomatic relative to a chest X-ray, which just kind of looks you know crummy, uh, with a lot of like reticular nodular infiltrate. Um, but then they'll be walking around and they won't feel great, but you know relative to a chest X-ray, you'll be like, wow, this person seems to be doing pretty well. Right. Exactly. On the same note, what's the most common cause of pneumonia in an HIV patient? And by same note, I mean totally unrelated. Yeah, well, we're still talking about the lungs, so that's a good one. That's kind of a gotcha, but it's the same cause of uh, pneumonia as the general public, so that would actually be strep pneumo. Perfect. So it is a kind of gotcha. It's an anti-joke. It's whatever you want to call it. Strep pneumo is the number one cause of pneumonia in most adults, even HIV patients. If it was a nosocomial infection, say hospital acquired, then what do you need to start thinking about? What, what do you start getting worried about? Um, You start worrying more about like MRSA or something of that nature. Yep. What else? Uh, pseudomonas, probably. Yep, exactly. So, community acquired, think strep pneumo, nosocomial, think gram-negative rods, you can think about MRSA, you can even think about anaerobes if there's concern for aspiration. And then my final question along the same thought process is, for cystic fibrosis patients, is there anything to think about? Well, cystic fibrosis patients, it actually kind of depends on age. Uh, The most common cause of pneumonia, I believe 20 is when it kind of reaches like a 50-50, where it can go either way. Um, But for younger individuals, it's actually, I believe, staph aureus. And then once you get to around 20 or so, the most common cause is actually pseudomonas. Perfect. Yep. So horrible, horrible infections to get. And so something you definitely need to make, make sure you know. Definitely. Although I can't say I've taken care of any uh, CF patients in person. But I'll drink regardless. But anyway, yeah, that was a good question. So you you have a baby come in. They're like like a really fresh baby. They're like a week old. And they have this staccato cough. What are you worried about? How do they smell? I mean, babies smell gross. So they're gross, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Really? You don't think babies smell good? Like I don't fresh know. Fresh baby scent? I mean, in terms of, like, when I was on surgery in OB, like, the C-section smell is worse than, like, the abscess drainage smell. Maybe that's just a me thing, but I don't know. I mean, I would smell gross if I didn't take a shower for nine months and I was just, like, wet the whole time. You know, just, like, peeing and drinking it and peeing and drinking it and just getting skin flakes everywhere. You know what I mean? Getting skin flakes. Yeah, there's a, that nice little fine layer of... Uh film on a baby when they come out. I forget what it's made out of, but people want that. It's like traditional stuff. No, Lanuga is the, isn't that the uh, hair? Like the white hair? Oh, yeah, you're right. I'm right. I mean, wait, <laughs> what is it called? <laughs> no, I know what you're saying. Yeah, no, you're right. Lanugo is the like fine vellus hairs that anorexic people have. Yeah. Uh, what is it called? I have to look that up now or I'm going to be angry. 
baby coating. How are we gonna? How am I even gonna find this? No, I don't want baby coats. Gap. <laughs> mm. Made from baby. <laughs> baby skin cover newborn. Oh, let's see. Romper.com. The baby foreskin uh, facial is a, a real yeah, thing. Yeah, no, I know. What's her name? Went on uh, Ellen and talked about Sandra? it. Sandra. Yeah, Sandra Bullock. Um, it's called Vernix. Yes, Vernix. It's highly uh, sought after, actually. They've actually created moisturizers based off the qualities of Vernix. Vernix. Can we talk? Can we talk about the baby foreskin facial really quick? Yeah. What do you want to know? <laughs> Everything. So, <laughs> I don't. I don't know why people thought like, oh yeah, baby foreskin. That's a good source of nutrients, but. From what I understand, they take it's primarily sourced from oh. Asian countries, and they take like the circumcision. Yeah, they take the circumcision remains and like macerate it, and do whatever so it doesn't like cross react, and then they use it as like a facial filler. And I think the reasoning is that it's like more biocompatible compared to like traditional synthetic fillers. And, and so what I'm seeing now is that the foreskin fibroblasts, like you can actually grow like cells for years with just some some foreskin fibroblasts some of the skin and they actually use it for things like burn victims diabetic ulcers etc etc but now they use it as like a, a facial product a company called hydrofacial has been using it for quite some time now so it's a uh, it's definitely interesting i mean you're going to be a dermatologist is this something that you are interested in pursuing as a future dermatologist it might be i've had a hydrofacial before back when my dad had a hydrofacial clinic and uh, man my skin has never felt like that it was awesome yeah. So just add some foreskin in there, and I can't imagine it being any worse, you know? Yeah, you seem like you've had a lot of facials. Yeah. It's just your, like, <laughs> defeated sigh, like, I don't have a response. To the viewers at home, to the listeners at home, I dislocated my toe today. It hurts like hell. That's all. If I you feel just any, want some pity points. I, I want some pity points, I want some empathy. It hurts like hell. I got some guy over here saying I'm getting facials. He knows, he knows I'm in pain, and... He's just trying to trying to dig dig deeper. Oh, I'm so sorry. You care about your facial skin care. E. <laughs> okay. I just you just asked a question. Oh, but we never even got to the answer. What was my question? <laughs> oh yeah, you're a you're a baby, and you. you dude, this it. this podcast is fucking off the. This podcast is so off the rails. We're only 15 minutes in. Uh, so the baby has, I think, RSV. Tell me if I'm wrong. You're wrong. Okay. You are wrong. Um, so that is a good thought with a staccato cough. But this baby is fresh out the oven. Oh, chlamydia. Chlamydia. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know my way. Oh, my Apple... What the... F Dude, that's wild. My Apple Watch Wikipedia'd cough for me and, and showed me a picture of a small boy coughing. I don't... I don't know how I'd even picked up on that. Yes, you are correct. It is chlamydia. <laughs> how would you have prevented that in the newborn? So, I was... <laughs> A newborn with a staccato cough, chlamydia. That's actually very funny. That's good to know. And it was just not RSV because of just the age, right? It's kind of more of like a brand new baby versus a five or six month out baby. Yeah, I guess I assume like a preterm newborn or whatever could get a, you know, RSV. Like that's why they give them what is it, like pavlizumab. But um, I was just getting more like a torch infection as compared to a, a systemic or like an opportunistic cause of pneumonia. Okay. Good question. Poor execution, I think. So yeah, that's um, fair. Sorry to oh, keep it vague. with that. Yeah, I, it's all right. I'm sad not to. It's okay. No, I'm sad. I'm going to go dislocate my toes. Pity so parties? Oh, my God. Too right. soon. Oh, 3D okay. pants with splint, too. 
Well, what was your next question? It was how do my, we prevent it? My follow-up question was how do you prevent that? Prevent the cough. So what what do we give to newborns to prevent chlamydial conjunctivitis? As a hint. Erythromycin ointment. Mm-hmm. So you're just giving an, an oral macrolide? Yeah, so you have to give them a To prevent them? Yeah, no, so that was actually a trick question because people always get confused about like chlamydia versus gonorrhea conjunctivitis. And the erythromycin will help prevent the gonorrhea conjunctivitis, but it won't help prevent the chlamydia conjunctivitis, and it won't do anything to prevent pneumonia. So you actually have but to Why give... are you even preventing the pneumonia? Like, how, how do you even know the kiddo will have a pneumonia? That's my question, you know? Like if mom tested positive for chlamydia. Okay, and, you, and the mom's on treatment. So the mom comes in, the baby's born, you test the mom, mom has chlamydia, now you're just like, you know what, this baby might have a pneumonia secondary to chlamydia, I'm mm-hmm. going to just give him prophylactic oral or whatever IV macrolide or yeah yep yep okay I didn't know that okay I know the the eye drops make sense because like it's easy you just spray them in fantastic it's done yeah. but the systemic therapy prophylactically seems uh, like something that I did not I was not aware of yeah well and that was also just getting at the like the eye drops will help the gonorrhea eye like conjunctivitis it doesn't actually help for chlamydia conjunctivitis or for gonorrhea or chlamydia pneumonia and the gonorrhea is conjunctivitis is like pretty like pretty bad and it's and it's quicker it's soon it's like within the yep. first week versus the chlamydial yeah. conjunctivitis which is uh maybe a couple weeks out and it's not so like you know um viscous and angry looking it's more of just like a serous fluid yeah no exactly um the time frame thing i think is the most important part but like chlamydia or gonorrhea conjunctivitis i think of you know kind of like a, a purulent discharge and then chlamydia conjunctivitis is more of like a watery runny type um conjunctivitis yeah but that nice. makes sense so i have a 56 year old man he presents with a left lower lobe pneumonia. All right, left lower lobe. Yep. You treat him appropriately, and he leaves the hospital. So that's great. That's the end. Just kidding. I did it. Five months pass. <laughs> and he, he, he's he got cancer. Him. God. Sorry. Continue the question, and I'll I'll, I'll pop off. No. Five months pass. He returns with fever, chills, and on the left lower lobe consolidation again. Other than what? treating the infection, what? <laughs> <laughs> Other than treating the infection, what should your next step be? I would be concerned about a lung cancer, so I would maybe get a CT scan on this gentleman. Perfect. Exactly. So anybody that has a recurrent pneumonia, that's odd. That's out of the ordinary. You need to consider that maybe there's a blockage within you know, um, the bronchi, within some aspect of the lung that's causing bacteria to accumulate there or preventing good airflow. So... With that case, if you see anybody coming with recurrent left lower lobe or right lower lobe, whatever lobe, pneumonia, think about cancer. Think about some type of obstructive etiology. Anything you want to add about that, Bob? Nope, that sounds good. Um, if they ask you about the most common type of cancer for that, it would be kind of the central cause as opposed to the peripheral. So like squamous would be more more likely yep. than like an adenocarcinoma to cause those types of symptoms because it's actually like the local compression that's causing the, um, the recurrent pneumonias and not actually any feature of the cancer itself. Right. Just a mass effect thing. Okay, so somebody comes to you and they cough up some rust-colored sputum. Mm. I think strep pneumo. What do you think? I think you're right. What would it look like on chest x-ray? Oh, man. It's a lobar pneumonia, typically. Oh, nice. Very good. Yeah. So uh, strep pneumo, the things to keep in mind, we already kind of talked about it. It's the most common cause of pneumonia for a lot of people. Um, but they'll describe their sputum as kind of a rust-colored. It's just blood mixed with blood. And then it tends to be low bars so that will usually affect a single lobe. If somebody has a uh, strep pneumo pneumonia in multiple lobes, they are probably not going to be having a good time um, just because usually it only affects one lobe. So if it's spread that far, then they probably are having other issues at the same time. 
So for a listener at home, we'll give you a five second answer for this yourself. What is strep pneumo the most common cause of in regards to other kind of organ systems? Like the, what other infectious processes is strep pneumo the number one cause for? See, my obvious. Bobby, you're supposed to be given time to answer this. I just said the acronym. I didn't say what they were. Do you want to play? Can we play right. the Jeopardy song during this? Probably not. Probably copyright issues. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, Bobby. What's the? C <laughs> mops. So. Yeah. What is it? Conjunctivitis, meningitis. The O stands for something. Otitis. Is it otitis? Oh, right, right. Yeah, otitis media. And then pneumonia, as we said, and then S for uh, sinusitis. Perfect. Moss, moss, moss. Perfect. Sure, very important. Now let's talk about some empirical therapy real quick. This is our uh, lightning round sound bite. Ding, 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 like we had last time where you just knocked it out of the park. I had to do a four-second pull. Yeah. And I'll just start it now, preemptively, because I know you're going to kill it. Check out, if you're interested in Harry Potter, I'm making some Harry Potter Tic Tacs recently, some high information. <laughs> hey, what? You said Tic Tac. Tic Tac, I'm from Boston. Uh, <laughs> Got some uh, Harry Potter TikToks uh, that uh, have some really good information, but are also kind of funny because they get Hagrid and uh, Dobby and all those bad boys in there as well. So check them out. Then our TikTok is usassembly underscore buzzwords. Actually, nice. no, it's just usassembly. Our our TikTok is usassembly buzzwords. Nice. No underscore needed. Lightning round. Empiric outpatient therapy. Someone comes in. You think it's a pneumonia. You want to empirically treat them. You don't really know what it is. What are the two medications that I'm thinking about? Read my mind. I'm gonna hit him with the vitamin Z, which is a Z pack, of course, azithromycin. Or uh, perhaps a third-generation cephalosporinic that's perfect. So uh, ZPAC correct. Yes, cetraxone cannot give an outpatient because it's only IV. So the best option, because like we said, like so many people have these atypicals. Oh right, or macrolide doxy. or doxy. Perfect. So let's say now you have a 65 or plus gentleman or woman has a lot of comorbidities. Anything that you'd want to change? Is there anything you want to add coverage-wise? This can also be outpatient. This one's tough because this one is, is not super easy. So you still get the macrolide, but now you need to be more worried about like strep pneumo. You have these older people, so you actually just give them a beta-lactam. Whatever you can give oral, it could be septazine, cephalosporin, um, but basically something that covers strep pneumo. So basically beta-lactam, it could be moxicillin, like you said, um, if you don't think there's you know gram-negative. So beta-lactam plus macrolide empirically uh, for someone with comorbidities and outpatient. We already said outpatient, kind of healthy, let's say 40-year-old guy, comes in with a cough and fever, macrolide or doxy. Now let's talk about a hospitalized patient. They come in, I'm sorry, yeah, they're hospitalized already. They come, And one day they start spiking fevers, you get chest x-ray, you see a pneumonia. They've been in the hospital for a couple days where it's now hospital-acquired pneumonia. What do you need to cover for? So in that instance, you would start worrying about like staph aureus or pseudomonas. So you yeah, so you're worried about hospitalized infections. Uh, staph is definitely up there. Although staph is kind of atypical to like in pneumonias. Um, it's like less common than pseudomonas. So I think pseudomonas is your number one bug to think about. Staph is definitely a thing, but... Um, Pseudomonas, I think, is the thing that everyone's scared about. So, at least in our hospital, when someone has pneumonia, they're already on ceftriaxone or they're already on something, uh, and they get worse, you start worrying about gram-negative frost. So you need to fight that with something that could be piperacillin, which is osin. Um, it can be cefepime. On the test, it's probably not cefepime because they don't like testing it on big guns, but piperacillin, chloroquinolone, aminoglycoside, any of those three can cover gram-negative frost. Ceftriaxone is not great against gram-negative frost right. pseudomonas. So it needs to be like fourth, fourth like cephalus. Ceftriaxone is a third generation. Yeah, you have what? Ceftazidime cep- is the third gen that you can use, and then cefepime is the fourth gen. Exactly. Exactly. That's right. And so I would say either those are good answers, or probably more so piperacillin, uh, tazobactam, or a just even piptazo. Piptazo, cefepime, aminoglycoside, or quinolone. Those are kind of your pseudomonas coverage in the hospital. Nice. Yeah, I, I blew all of that. There's a uh, Anki card that I have in my deck that is like just one card for all of those, and it's like 
outpatient healthy outpatient not healthy outpatient not healthy and old inpatient inpatient unhealthy so it's like six lines with like two or three antibiotics each and i always just look at it and i'm like hmm what are the chances going to come up it finally i you know i'm finally paying that toll so i'll, I'll do a nice there long pull to that there you go we'll listen in quiet in silence All right, nice. and then I have one actually. We weren't done, so I have one more question. Oh, God. Latent TB. Nine months of isomerism. Perfect. Awesome. It's kind, of a, it's kind of like there's this weird in between right now where sometimes people say, you know, six months, nine months, it doesn't matter. The answer will be if it's latent, if you get someone, their tuberculin skin test is off the charts, it's positive, but then you get a chest x ray and there's nothing in the lungs that you can identify, so they don't have active TB, they're not infectious, you can treat them as latent TB and isoniazid by itself will be the right answer. Sounds good to me. And I think we already had talked about. Um, isoniazid and the side effects and stuff last episode, so we won't won't dive into that too much. But just remember that the majority of the uh, treatments for TB can cause liver issues. That's like the one thing that's kind of common to all of them. Yep. Let's say you had a patient come in and they, they were like, you know what, doctor, my, I'm, I'm on this TB treatment and I've been crying a lot because I uh, dislocated my toe and it's one of the most painful things. What? But my tears are now orange. What? What are you? Are you worried about those orange tears? Or are you kind of just reassure them? I would just reassure them and tell them to take their contacts out because it can actually stain it. But that's just secondary to the rifampin. Rifampin, right. And then they say, they leave and they come back and you're like, doctor, actually, like, I took the contacts out. My toe still freaking hurts because this is, like, actually a pretty traumatic injury that people need emotional support for. So, but now my eyes hurt and I have, like, just, like, this pain around my face and my eyes and sometimes it's even hard to see. Are you worried about that? And then which medication are you concerned about now? Um, I am worried about the, uh, I believe it's the pyrazinamide causing not pyrazinamide it's, oh, it's the, the one that's easier yeah, yeah, yeah. ifambutal yep exactly pyrazinamide i think is is what it's a um a uric acid issue right i think that's the thing that pyrazinamide causes medications and then let's say the patient leaves and they come back down they're like all right i love the care that you're getting my ortho guy my my podiatrist they're not really helping me with my toe they all think it's in my head they think i'm being dramatic uh i'm still crying orange tears but now i'm not i'm having like lots of like sensation in some of my other toes and even some of my fingers which medication is, is doing this to me doc the peripheral neuropathy is also caused by isoniazid. Perfect. Yep, isoniazid we talked about in the last episode, which I think was one of our best, if not our best episode thus far, uh, hematology, oncology, part two. But we talked about isoniazid in the setting of an anemia, so we won't spoil it for you here, but it can cause the type of anemia, and it can also cause peripheral neuropathy, in addition to what you said before, the liver disease. I'll drink to that. How's your, uh, how's your beer? You know, I'm like, I'm pretty much done with it now, in the sense that, like, I'm meant to, like, okay if i just do it out you're checked because, out uh, yeah it's not like something i'm like when you say i'll drink to that like you're like normally... oh do i have to drink to that too <laughs> like do i have to to match that normally i'm okay like i'll drink with with whatever's happening right and dread it run from it run from it taking sips so still happens <laughs> so uh somebody comes into your office and they they didn't get a flu shot and they're having some you know upper respiratory infection symptoms maybe a little you know kind of chest pain tightness type stuff shortness of breath and you uh you diagnose them with a pneumonia but you think it's probably just viral from influenza and they uh start getting better but then like a week or two later they seem like they're going downhill again what's going on so this person had a viral pneumonia and subsequently had a secondary bacterial infection perhaps okay Um, hold on hold on and it's not covid right covid is not the answer no okay so someone got sick, they got better, and then they got worse, and it's not a secondary infection. It's this okay. No, I'm not saying it's, it's not a secondary infection, but you're gonna have to be a little bit more specific if you don't want to drink. Okay, so someone had, let's say, the flu, because that's kind of 
they didn't get a flu shot, so if I was looking at question stem, that's what I would think. Maybe they have the flu, and they got better. They had a secondary infection, and you're telling me the symptoms are like pneumonia symptoms, like yeah. fevers, chills, cough, yeah. productive sputum. So then I'm thinking of a secondary infection, the most common two being strep pneumonia and staph aureus. Then I would consider either of those and treat accordingly. Yeah, exactly. So this is just one of those weird classic associations that I want you to know. But um, for whatever reason, a super infection or like a subsequent secondary infection after influenza virus is almost always staph aureus. So yeah, that's just something that. to keep in mind for testing purposes. Cool. So this is kind of an infectious disease question, but it's kind of into the nitty gritty. I think it still could come up on a test. But there is a difference between antigenic drift and antigenic shift, and I think it's important that people know that. So if you remember from the sketchy, you know, the sketch about influenza, you have the drift, which is the point mutation that leads to the yearly reinfections. So I don't know, Bobby, do you have a good way of remembering that, where drift leads to just kind of the yearly trend of reinfections? Well, if you think about, you know, car movies like Fast and the Furious and Tokyo Drift, they come out every year. Oh, that's good, actually. Fantastic. So antigenic drift is that kind of uh, scenario, and then antigenic shift is what actually causes the pandemics. Uh, and so shifts, I thought about shifts suck. So like when you do a shift, it kind of sucks. And if you have antigenic shift, it kind of sucks and pandemics suck. So think about drift, Tokyo drift every year, antigenic shift. These are big, like basically jumps in genomes that cause basically viruses that your immune system has never seen and thus causes uh, pretty severe pandemics and things that their vaccines are just not capable of treating. So let's say you have a person come in and it's uh, the brother of your patient, Bobby. and they're like, you know what, my brother had the flu and now I've had the flu. I think I've had it for, you know, 15 hours. They're very precise. They're a mathematician. They're an accountant. Mm -hmm. And they're saying, is there anything you can give me? I just got it that can help me with my symptoms. So I would want to give them amantadine. Just kidding. Uh, you'd give them uh, Ulcetamivir. So amantadine <laughs> is a Parkinson treatment. And that was actually originally developed for treatment of influenza, but um, is no longer effective. Like they did a study a couple years ago that showed that there's 100% resistance to it as a uh, antiviral from influenza. But uh, also Tamavir is technically effective, I believe, within the first 24 hours and can actually be given in high-risk individuals uh, regardless of when their symptoms started. Yep, so first 24, 48 hours, Tamiflu is something that you can consider. Otherwise, it really hasn't shown to be too effective, and it's really just symptomatic treatment. Yeah. So you are an old smoker. No. And you have pneumonia. Legionella. But you haven't been... To anywhere that has indoor plumbing in your life damn so you can't have legionella <laughs> what are you worried about i'm sorry i'm an old smoker that now has pneumonia mm -hmm. strep pneumo trick question so you're kind of right i guess the three so the three most common causes in somebody who smokes are strep pneumo h flu and uh the weird one uh morixella catarhalis yeah, those two, H flu and Morixella, just always elude me. There's, like, no easy way for me to remember them. It's just one of those things you have to, like, memorize. Like, smoker, H flu, Morixella. All right, well, I have another patient comes in with an acute, red, angry, painful pharynx. Are you initially thinking viral or bacterial when you just see acute pharyngitis or when you start thinking about it? I generally think viral. Perfect, and everyone should because most acute episodes of pharyngitis are predominantly viral 90 plus percent especially 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 and this is the key point of pharyngitis if you see any uri symptoms you know post nasal drip even a cough think about a viral infection because strep pharyngitis does not cause it actually one of the criteria for it to be strep pharyngitis is no cough so if you have a cough at all 
a dry cough, for example, and you're thinking about a pharyngitis picture, think viral. So now let's say you are considering strep pharyngitis. What's the next test to kind of confirm it? Is it a culture or is it just an antigen test? If you think it's strep pharyngitis, then you can do a rapid strep test. And if it's Perfect. negative, then you would follow up with a culture. Exactly. Right. So never pick the culture first. It's always the rapid first. And worst comes to worst, you wait a couple of days for the culture if it's negative. But if you just start off with the culture, it just doesn't make sense nowadays. So there's some complications with acute pharyngitis, and those include acute rheumatic fever, which we can go into more detail later, sinusitis, retropharyngeal, and peritonsillar abscesses. Many of these can be pretty severe, including the retropharyngeal and obviously the rheumatic fever. And so we treat acute pharyngitis, strep pharyngitis nowadays, to prevent some of these symptoms. What is the one symptom or what is one manifestation or sequela of acute pharyngitis that cannot, or I guess has shown not, to be reduced in incidence, even with antibiotic treatment? So that would be Puskin, also known as a post-strep glomerulonephritis. Perfect. And that's kind of another uh, cola, cola colored urine, right? We talked about that last episode. The uh, pathologists love their uh, cola. They sure do. So somebody has a seizure or they're a big drinker and they uh, come in with a pneumonia. What are you worried about? Aspiration. And where would you see it? Aspiration, right lower lobe pneumonia. There you go. And what uh, flora are you worried about? Anaerobic flora. Yeah. Interestingly, nowadays, we don't actually treat them with anaerobic coverage anymore. There's been some studies that show that there's no difference, you know, giving flagellar metronidazole versus not. So they actually just treat a client now as a community-acquired pneumonia and have seen no change in, change in outcomes. So that's interesting. I don't know if that's something that will necessarily be covered on the boards anymore because of that kind of discrepancy in new research. So I'm sure they, they wouldn't be, yeah, it would be unfair because students are learning in clinic right now. You don't need to give everyone metronidazole that you're considering anaerobic infection and if the boards continue to test that, that's that's unfair. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it wouldn't be the first time that I learned something in clinic and then tried to apply it to a test and got the question wrong as a result. So okay. it do it do be like that sometimes. And the last question of the evening. Let's say that kiddo that you had earlier that had the flu came in with another bout of the flu the next year. And he had the fever and cough. And you're like, yep, this is probably the flu. It sounds like it is muscle aches, everything. And you say, okay, mom, just give him symptomatic treatment. You know, you can help him with his fevers, et cetera, et cetera. They go home. And then two days later, the kid comes back, rushed in by his father. And the father goes, I don't know what's happening. The kid, he's, he woke up this morning extra nauseated. He's vomiting. He's not saying anything that makes sense. He's normally totally coherent. He's now confused. His mom has, given, has been giving him, you know, NSAIDs to help with his fevers, but nothing else. It's just been symptomatic treatment. What's going on? What's, what are you concerned about? I am concerned that the mother did a big oopsie and gave the child aspirin, and he now has Ray's syndrome. Perfect. Yeah, Ray's syndrome, it's, it's a weird syndrome. It was actually uh, discovered by someone at Temple University, but it is just a, it's like a fatty acid oxidation disorder. It causes potentially hepatic failure. Treatment is basically supportive. I mean, kiddos can even go to the ICU with this, and, and they're really sick. So aspirin in kiddos, big oopsie, like Bobby said, uh, and it typically occurs when these kiddos already have like a viral infection going on, and you add the aspirin onto that, interestingly enough. What would you see on a liver biopsy? Uh, fatty acid oxidation. <laughs> Could you be a little bit more specific, please? It's pretty specific. So you would see a microvesicular hepatitis, mm. which is differentiated from an alcoholic hepatitis where you would see a macrovesicular hepatitis. Can you be a little bit more specific? No, I don't think you can. I think that's as specific <laughs> as it gets. Well, that... Sorry, I know. Steatosis. That you see, is that, I guess what my question is, are those fats 
reduced or oxidized? <laughs> the word on the street is that they are probably <laughs> oxidized. Okay, that's that's all I wanted. That's all I needed to know. Thank you for the specifics. So it's kind yeah. of just like a fatty acid oxidation disorder. Maybe. Or like maybe <laughs> maybe a problem with fatty acid oxidation, perhaps. All right, guys, if you get that wrong on the freaking test. It's understandable because we made it very confusing. <laughs> Don't blame me. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. I'll drink to that. All right, Bobby, what's your ultimate score for your drink? Whew, that's a tough one. I like... what, Remember you gave it your beer last episode was, I think, a 7 or 7.5, if I'm not mistaken. We'll have to have our fact checker check. The thing is, is I, I like IPAs. I don't love IPAs. This is, in terms of IPAs, pretty solid. But in terms of overall beers, so I would say a 5. The thing is, is, this is we've had what I I had two beers in a row that weren't rated on Beer Advocate, so yeah. Let's see, sticky. Got those indie beers. I think part of it's because they're seasonal, and the season has changed. Sticky icky. Overall, rating ninety one. Wow, that's awesome, and and you give it a five, so that's interesting. It's an interesting discrepancy. Uh, yeah, I mean it has an average of four point one out of five. I like I understand like for, in terms of an IPA, it's a good IPA. But, yeah, I don't think we appreciate IPAs for what they are, to be honest, because I'm about to tell you my score, and, and we'll see what the real score yeah. is. Yeah, I'm just there's not... So, there's something... It's yeah. all the, the, the magnesium and the molybdenum flavors that I'm picking up, and I'm like, I'm just not a robot, you know? Too much selenium. Yeah. So, the Stone IPA is not a beer I would have again. I found that it's, like, rather harsh. I have this weird kind of, uh, kind of, like, sharp aftertaste in my mouth right now, uh, just after, you know, having a sip, and so... I don't know. It's not my cup of tea. I would give it probably a 3 out of 10, to be honest. I wouldn't drink it again. Now, the Beer Advocate score, on the other hand, it is a 94 out of 100. So there's clearly something I'm missing. It's ranked number 67 in IPAs overall. And it's one of, quote, one of the most well-respected and best-selling IPAs in the country. This golden beauty explodes with citrusy flavor and hop aromas perfectly balanced by a subtle malt character. See, if I read that, I would totally buy this beer. Thinking like citrus... Hop aromas, best-selling, most respected. That's fantastic. But sipping this now, I, it's like, am I even am I even drinking the same thing? Like, it boggles my mind. What am I missing? Am I just not cultured? Yeah, that's the thing. I think IPAs are good sometimes. But they're just, I don't know. It's too much for me sometimes, you know? All right, guys. That is it for today's episode. Like I said before, at the beginning, shoot us a message if you're interested in any stickers. With that being said, have a fantastic rest of your day and a wonderful week. Cheers. Cheers. Gunna. Happy Halloween, too. Happy Spooktober, you gunners. We're outie.